This is episode 31 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Karen Scheffler. Today we will be discussing a rebuttal, basically, to the article that was posted in the Washington Post last week about dysphagia. So we will hear from Karen. She wrote a stellar blog post in response to it, so we'll discuss some of the highlights from that and then discuss where do we go from here as a profession, so how can we use this to our advantage. So... Karen has over 20 years of experience as a medical SLP specializing in dysphagia since 1995, where she graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She obtained her board certification as a swallowing specialist in 2012. In 2014, she started SwallowStudy.com, which is a dysphagia resource for patients and professionals. Karen has worked in acute care, rehab settings, skilled nursing facilities, and home health care. She currently works at two different hospitals in Boston, owns her own dysphagia consulting business, performs peer reviews and presentations, and provides dysphagia expert services to companies and law firms. Believing in constant continuing education, she has been awarded the ASHA Award for Continuing Education five times. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Group 13, the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, and the Dysphagia Research Society, where she is a member of the Website Communications and PR Committee. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Happy March. Hopefully some of you are experiencing spring weather somewhere in the world. Um, Here in lovely Buffalo, it snowed last week. It's snowing right now. It's going to snow again later this week. This is just terrible. But luckily, I've been doing lots of traveling. Um, I helped out with Dr. Eric Blicker uh, with the fees course yesterday in New York City. And those those are always so exciting. I met so many of you guys that love listening to this podcast. So thank you so much for coming up and sharing with me your experiences. I just love helping you guys and spreading my love for fees. So, and then came home. I've got a few days crazy worth of patients and headed this weekend to the MDTP course. I get to finally take it, you guys. So um, I don't know how much I'll be able to share on a future episode because I know it's like super secretive, but I'm sure I'll just be ecstatic and have the same reaction as everyone else. So And then I have two or three more days of treating patients, and then it's off to DRS. So the Dysphagia Research Society meetings are next week. Those are always so fun. I get to see, like, so many of my friends are going this year. I'm so excited to see you guys. So it's always a good time and get to mingle with all the researchers and professors and just learn so much cool stuff. So if you guys ever have a chance to go to that, um, make sure you get to that. So um, speaking of DRS, I want to, of course, thank our sponsor, as always, um, EndoHD, And they have like the coolest new software coming out. So you'll hear about that later in the episode, but definitely be sure to check them out at TRS because I'm really excited myself to to see it and play with it. And then also, I know a lot of you guys are interested more about AmpCare, the neuromuscular electrical stim unit. Uh, We had Russ back on episode 19. There'll be a DRS also, so you can check out the system, check out the unit. I know they've got a lot of really new research that's come out about that. So if you're really wanting to know kind of the evidence base behind that, go see them at DRS, check that out as well. And lastly, uh, this episode is brought to you by the new Medical SLP Solution membership site. So this has been my baby for the last couple months, but it's really everything you need to make your job as a medical SLP easier. So it's a resource library. We have ASHA CEU continuing education webinars answers to your tough questions by highly qualified staff of medical SLPs. We have a private Facebook group. We have a private forum on the website if you want to post questions anonymously. So really, I from doing this podcast, what I've learned is that there are so many people that have such a thirst for this knowledge and just wanting to help our patients. Like we all want to do so much good. Like we got into this profession to help our patients and kind of somewhere along the line with, you know, red tape or, you know, productivity standards or, you know, just, just not having as much education as we wish we did. You know, it's, it's hard to know if what you're doing with your patients is the right thing. So I wanted to create something with a team of people 
that you know you can go and and learn the evidence and the research behind techniques that we do and also just if you're clueless about what to do with a patient you know we've got some awesome professors in the group that are you know leading people to you know check out this textbook check out this patient get back to me tomorrow you know so it's I couldn't be any more prouder of the community that we've created so if you guys are are loving these podcasts and like I said, I vow to keep this podcast as for free as long as I can. So I'm beyond grateful to everyone that donates on Patreon. But um, if you are looking for a little more support in medical SLP dysphagia island land, um, please check us out at medslpsolution.com. We'd love to have you. Um, I know a lot of people have come for the resources and the weekly training videos, the weekly handouts that are all blind peer reviewed by university professors, but a lot of them end up staying for the community and to basically help our patients. That's all why we got into this field. So um, without further ado, I hope you guys love this episode with Karen. Hello, Karen. Hello there. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for joining me. Yes, thank you. Bright and early in the morning. Yes, that's all right. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So I'm excited to dive into this topic today. I'm sure you are as well. It's certainly been the topic of the week. (laughs) Yeah. Hit the global dysphagia world. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. We've gone viral finally. So so basically, um, Karen's here today because we are going to kind of set the record straight on that wonderfully horrible article in the uh, Washington Post this past week. Um, So there was an article in the Washington Post on February 25th. Uh, titled Problem Swallowing Are a Big Killer, But the Treatment Can Be Horrible uh, by two doctors at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And um, we kind of just wanted to basically dispel the myths of this article, but also, you know, where, where do we go from here? So let's use this as a learning opportunity. Let's use this to educate our colleagues and I guess try to make some good from it. So we've got a platform and we might as well run with it. That's right. Yeah. We were lucky to get the spotlight of dysphagia. It's very rare that we that we hit the mainstream with the topic of dysphagia. So we do need to turn this from the horrors of the article to a learning opportunity um, for all the multidisciplinary care, but also a wake-up call for our field. We'll, we'll dive into those issues. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I gave a little kind of ditty about Karen in the beginning, but this is Karen Scheffler, everyone. So Karen, if you want to just give a little blurb about who you are. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Can we take the whole hour? No, I'm kidding. Absolutely. (laughs) Go for it. Only kidding. Um, So I'm a speech-language pathologist. I've specialized in medical speech-language pathology really for over 20 years. Um, After I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I have to give them a shout out because I think the way that I think about dysphagia, the critical thinking about it and everything has, was stemmed out of, out of my education there with Dr. Robbins and Dr. Rosenbeck and Dr. James Coyle as he was um, finishing his uh, postdoc work at the University of Wisconsin. It was, was back then in the 90s. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so, and, you know, fast forward, um, I was seeing a lot of problems in the field and really, you know, sometimes how fast we're made to, to work where it's kind of like move in, get, get in there, evaluate the patient and get out. And, you know, not really looking at the swallowing in a holistic way. And it was really pushing me to want to um, write more and, and work more in the field. And so 2012 is when I started the swallowstudy.com, which is a resource for us professionals, but also for patients. And, um, and that's just really launched me into doing a lot of other work that you can see in the bio and <laughs> other things. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Swallowstudy.com is a phenomenal resource if you guys aren't familiar with it. So Karen writes some brilliant pieces there. So please do check that out. And I do uh, tend to be a little long winded. I don't, I don't do the 500 word blogs. I just don't do that. I think that's my brand. That's okay. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Run with it, man. It's it's clearly served you well, Karen. So yeah. All right. So let's, I guess let's dive into this then. Yeah. So um, I'm not going to go into Karen's entire blog, but she basically as a rebuttal to this article in the Washington Post um, on February 27th on swallowstudy.com, Karen wrote a, a blog post called Hope for Dysphagia 
got your speech pathologist on your multidisciplinary dysphagia team. And she highlights, she wanted to do 10, but as she said, she's long-winded. So she did 12, <laughs> 12 rebuttals to the article. Uh, so, so really, I mean, use this piece, you guys, as a, I guess, jumping off point to help to educate your colleagues and your physicians. And so we're going to, we're going to get into a few of them now. So I guess, Karen, is there, was there one line in this article that just really got under your skin or was it the whole thing? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> The first one, well, let me tell you, I had a week off where school vacation <laughs> week was the week before this article. And, you know, I'm trying to stay relaxed because over school vacation week, I was doing too much work anyway. But so I get in and one of my colleagues at the hospital was like, did you see this article? Did you see what they said about the epiglottis? Oh my God. So that was sort of like the first thing when I walked in the door and we sat down as a team Monday morning to look at this article. Um, <laughs> that was only the first. Um, but if I could just start this out by just like just saying that the two big take home messages that that I wanted to um, to think about because the other big thing that, that hit me was that they right away were calling dysphagia a disease. So that brings to one big take home message that that um, you know if we stop at calling dysphagia a disease, it doesn't push the team to dig deeper and find out what the underlying causes of the trouble swallowing are. So, so I think that's a big, a big issue. Um, I'll let you, if you want to respond to that first take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't remember when or where, what caused it, but on Twitter a while back, maybe a couple months ago, there was kind of a big uproar about, you know, what is dysphagia? And a few people chimed in and said, look, you guys, it's both, it's both a symptom and it's also a condition. A condition, so yeah. It, yeah. So you, it's up to us to determine what caused that dysphagia. Is it a symptom of a medication someone's on or is it a condition that was caused by a stroke? Um, so that's, you know, really like what you said, we can't just say it's a disease um, because it's not, it's a, it's part of a larger picture. Right. Yeah. I want to give some kudos to um, Rosemary Martino in Toronto. Um, it was a dysphagia research society meeting several years ago um, where she came out and was really stressing that point in one of her sessions um, that, you know, the dysphagia is a symptom of many different diseases, disorders, conditions, structural issues, all sorts of things. So, so kudos to Dr. Martino on, on, uh, really starting to, to have us all tout that uh, concept. So um, another big take-home message of dysphagia is that it is a big killer. And it was nice that the article did go into the impact that dysphagia has. Um, but the, the point that we've been talking about in our department is that dysphagia used to kill a lot of people a lot faster than it does now. Um, before we had all the treatments and, and, and all the evaluations and treatments of dysphagia. Um, but of course, treatment does not include only thickened liquids um, or modifying diets or placing feeding tubes. Um, however, we could think of thickened liquids and modifying diets um, as bridges to, you know, until the, the person is actually improved. Even a feeding tube could be a bridge until the person has improved to the point that they can, they can heal and, and um, that we can rehabilitate their swallow. Um, but the article, we were really worried that somebody will read this and never want to use thickened liquids or never want to use a feeding tube or never want to modify a diet. Um, and, you know, people used to die of dysphagia a lot faster. We're trying to prevent the choking episodes. We're trying to prevent the, the aspiration pneumonia. Um, and really looking at, at these techniques that we have, our, our whole toolbox of treatment is a bridge to allow the person to, to heal. And I think you had mentioned these things are like crutches until we can rehabilitate and improve the swallowing. Uh, so this article was really a disservice to we're worried that people are going to now, oh, I'm not going to pick those strategies at all. <laughs> so. Right, right. I think, you know, he clearly didn't go into what we can do about it. You know, I think these doctors, you know, I can't speak for them, but just the impression I got from the article was that all, you know, we can do to quote unquote treat dysphagia is put someone on thickened liquids or a feeding tube. Whereas there's this entire other realm that we really can do as far as treating the swallow and rehabbing the swallow. And I think we've all seen that before, you know, we've seen some 
you know, you work in acute care, you work in the ICU, you've seen some really, really sick patients that, you know, may, may easily be written off and say, oh, you're going to need a feeding tube for life. But, you know, you've seen it, I've seen it, we've all seen these patients down the road that have had good, solid rehab and exercises, and now they're eating again. Exactly. Um, so I think, you know, that's the main message that we've got to get out there. And, you know, I think I've said it on here before, too, and you, and you mentioned, too, Karen, that, you know, thickened liquids and feeding tubes are, are like crutches, you know, I think, you know, not, you know, excluding maybe the ALS population or, you know, those where they use feeding tubes for end of life. But these, um, you know, someone that has a stroke, um, you know, I think of them as like crutches. You don't just fall down and break your ankle and the doctor says, here's your crutches for life. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Right. You know, they, With say, no physical they therapy. Say, yeah. right, yeah, right. Just... You know, they say, here's your crutches, go get some physical therapy, come back in four to six weeks. We'll re-x-ray it, see how you're doing. And, and that's really the mentality that I try to have with thickened liquids and feeding tubes is, okay, here's how we're going to get you some nutrition now. But in the meantime, we're going to be rehabbing the heck out of that swallow and doing exercises till the cows come home. And then we can redo some imaging again in a few weeks and, and see where we are. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so to really discount that whole category of therapy for dysphagia is, is really just like discounting physical therapy to rehabilitate your hip or, or anything like that. So, um, and I think, you know, one of the problems was, is that this article was lumping together end of life dysphagia issues with all dysphagia. Um, there was one comment response on the Washington post from, fortunately it was from a quote, disappointed MD. Um, You know, you have to give yourself a title when you're posting your comments. (laughs) And so his was disappointed MD. He actually said, please, he or she actually said, please mostly ignore this article, (laughs) which that's the way he came out with the, I'm just saying he arbitrarily, (laughs) he or she came out with the the beginning of his comment. Um, Also saying, uh, do not lump end of life dysphagia aspiration with all dysphagia. Um, and fortunately, going on to saying swallowing problems result from an enormous spectrum of disease processes and anatomic factors. If you have dysphagia, aspiration is one of many problems that can be seen in patients with dysphagia. Um, and then goes on to say, of course, further studies and treatment by speech language pathologists, as well as other physicians like gastroenterologists, laryngologists, and everything. Um, but I do like how that comment pointed out that aspiration is not the be all end all, <laughs> which is such a key thing to, to keep in mind. And um, there was also a great comment by Dr. Paula Leslie. Paula Leslie commented on the SIG 13 um, you know, page of, of comments. And Dr. Leslie from University of Pittsburgh, I believe, um, she said, we have scared the clinical professions witless about anything with the word aspiration in it, and that all aspirations lead to pneumonia and death. So Dr. Leslie has, you know, for years been the one to be saying, um, you know, it's that big, bad A word, you know, it's the A word. We have to, we have to realize that we as a profession of speech language pathologists have done a good job educating doctors about bad aspiration, but now we need to like take it a step further. So they, they kind of get, they're getting it about aspiration, but I think the doctors, when they hear us only say the person's aspirating modified diet or NPO, the doctors feel kind of cornered by that. They, they hear aspiration and they think that that is going to equal pneumonia. That's going to equal a downward slide. I better stop that and put in a tube. Um, it's a real, um, you know, just quick reaction to our recommendations. So we have to be very careful with how we summarize our patients, how we give the rationale and everything, and then how we recommend and that, and that recommendations need to be broader than just, oh my God, I saw some aspiration on my video swallow. I better say NPO. Uh, Then the doctors are cornered with that. So, you know, court, you know, blocked into a corner. So, um, so yeah, so if we provide options rather than, um, and a bigger picture, you know, bigger picture rationale and summary and, and more options um, for the team to really consider. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, and, and kind of reversing a little bit to what you said, I mean, it, as speech pathologists, it's our, it's our job 
literally, to kind of know the difference between these conditions and know how I'm going to treat a a person with dementia with dysphagia, how I'm going to treat a person with ALS with dysphagia, how I'm going to treat a patient with a stroke with dysphagia, how I'm going to treat a 20-year-old drug overdose patient with dysphagia. They are all going to be completely different. You know, we're not just going to stick a peg tube in them and say that, okay, they had one episode of aspiration, they, you know, that means pneumonia because that's not the truth, you know. So we have to know when, you know, thickened liquids and feeding tubes do have a place with some of these patients. So with end of life, with dementia, is is the feeding tube, is that really the best solution? No, heck no. You know, and, and I will give the authors of this article props because they I did say I wish they that. would have just stuck um, to that. If, if this whole right? article should have been about end-of-life care, palliative care around the topic of dysphagia. They should have started out saying there's many things that cause dysphagia, but we're going to talk about how, boy, at the end of life, isn't it sad to see patients, you know, with profound states of dementia that we never should be seeing. You know, there is this old concept that pneumonia is the old man's friend because, Pneumonia is what is supposed to take the life of somebody with advanced dementia. Um, it's, you know, you're supposed to check out before, <laughs> before you get to those profound states that are described in this article where people are lined up in the walls with goop dripping into their stomachs. Um, you know, and, and that's not even a realistic thing because research has actually been finding that you put G-tubes in people with, with uh, dementia and it does not prolong their life. Um, the, the rates of people that remain eating versus those who get tube feedings tend to be living about equal amounts. And you can't do a randomized control trial on feeding tubes in dementia. <laughs> but the, the studies that have been done <clears throat> that show... Um, you know, those who have chosen a feeding tube versus those who've chosen to stay eating by mouth, those lengths of life are pretty equal. Um, so feeding tubes are not prolonging life. And they're actually, of course, as we all know, as speech pathologists, that the feeding tubes are actually causing more aspiration pneumonia in these patients with, with dementia. Um, so, and yeah, and so Dr. Leslie's article really also went over that concept. Um, and she said that the one line that hits home in the article was, it's reasonable for hospital teams to evaluate how patients swallow, but the sanctity of food should not be taken away on the false promise, that's the key, the false promise of an improved lifespan or a reduction in lung infections. So they were really getting to the concept that we, you know, we no longer think that placement of feeding tubes is appropriate in, in patients with dementia or with other very end-of-life situations, that they're not going to you know, improve the quality or the length of life, or, and they're certainly not going to prevent aspiration pneumonia. They're actually causing aspiration pneumonia or being an underlining, <laughs> underlining source of, of things coming back up and aspirating. Um, and also when somebody's NPO, of course, their oral hygiene is nasty, so then they're also aspirating their secretions still. And, and um, when you're aspirating the colonized bad bacteria from your mouth, then you know, that can get you uh, sick with aspiration pneumonia. Which brings me up to the, the other concept that, that uh, the, was another problem with the article is that you know, they're talking about all these, you know, how aspiration is so bad, but then they only say aspiration from the esophagus to the lungs. <laughs> so, so we talked a little bit before about the mechanisms for aspiration and that, um, and that how this is, uh, you know, if you're only aspirating from the esophagus to the lungs, that doesn't even <laughs> cover <laughs> even half right. of, right. of uh, what we're thinking about with, with right. dysphagia. So, um, so yeah, so they, the article was very back and forth, mixed up, but if it yeah. would have just stuck to the concept of, of you know, end, end of life and, and advanced dementia, then it would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> Minus all the other yeah, yeah. technical anatomical errors. <laughs> Right, right, right. I do just want to add if this stuff is totally new to you about feeding tubes and dementia and end of life, if you go back and listen to episode six with Dan Weinstein, he lays all this out and gives all the actual, like Karen was talking about the research, gives the papers and all those are documented in the show notes for that episode. So go back and listen to that episode if if all this is kind of foreign to you. Um, But I think, you know, you hit on a good point too about 
the colonized bacteria in the mouth. And it's, it's funny that we're talking about this now. I was working on um, I was working on a handout for my the medical SLP solution this week about the three pillars of pneumonia that Dr. Ashford, Ashford yeah. talks about. And I, and I, yeah, and I came across one of your old swallow study blogs from like 2014 or something. About I've been that. writing about oral hygiene yeah. for so many years. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. ironically yeah. also at the same time, Asha asked me to write an article about oral hygiene and aspiration pneumonia prevention for their May Asha leader. Um, fortunately, good timing. The May Asha leader, Asha told me was going to be all about dysphagia. So, so, which is why they had asked me to write the oral hygiene um, blog for that. So, so believe it or not, Tuesday I wrote this blog on my website to rebut all this. Oh, but goodness. what I had to do was my ASHA blog about oral hygiene. So I got that in on Wednesday. <laughs> so oh, it'll good. Be, it'll yeah. be coming hopefully in the in the May uh, uh, ASHA leader. But but like oh, you said, excellent. the. Um, on my website, um, there's a oral hygiene, uh, oral care and aspiration pneumonia prevention post that I have that then links to all of my blogs that I've written. I've written like five blogs on the topic. Um, and if you're really into like saliva and oral hygiene and the oral microbiome and all these things, check out the, those blogs because um, one of the blogs, I don't know if you saw, it was the one I had just been out to Mount St. Helens and this seems off topic. But, but Mount St. Helens after the, the volcano, um, the volcano you know, of yeah. course, the flora and fauna completely changed. The whole, the whole ecosystem and biome out there completely changed. So it got me thinking, of course, on vacation, still thinking about swallowing. <laughs> it got me thinking about, well, you know, how does the oral microbiome change in somebody with critical illness, in somebody in the ICU with with you know, with everything that goes along with with uh, with critical illness and with the, the care that that is happening in the ICU and and how does the oral microbiome change and shift, um, you know, shifting to gram negative bacteria as well and and really, you know, shifting to the point that the oral biome is spill is spiraling out of control and can really be the the underlying source of getting sick with aspiration pneumonia. So, so it's a hot topic. <laughs> Great topic. Yeah. 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 And, and that's kind of one thing that I really try to educate the SLPs that I work with and, and the doctors that I work with too is, you know, on kind of Dr. Ashford's three pillars well, of pneumonia. Let's talk about those. And yeah. He actually just, yeah, he actually just put out a, a little post on their website, um, SA Swallowing Services. I think it's SASSPLLC.com. Um, so the, the three pillars of pneumonia. So we obviously have aspiration as one, but we've talked about aspiration is not the be all end all aspiration does not equal pneumonia. There's these other two pillars that have to happen in order for pneumonia to occur. And those other two pillars are poor oral health, which Karen was talking about, and she's obviously very passionate about, (laughs) and then a a poor overall immune system. Um, So we take these patients that are already immune compromised in the ICU that have poor oral health, they're not getting the oral care that they need, plus they are aspirating. So that's the perfect storm for pneumonia there. But if we can, if we know that a person's aspirating and we can help to control their oral care at least, um, not that there's much we can do about their immune system, but at least we know depending on, you know, are they up, are they walking around, right. are they generally Helping healthy versus are they... Yeah, bedridden status is right. a big aspect as well. Yeah. Right. From Langmore's work, of course, the bedridden status and are they dependent on oral care, dependent on others? Just that dependency and bedridden status is a, is also a big key, key pillar really. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you're not sure where to start with educating your colleagues and educating your physicians on aspiration pneumonia, I think that's kind of just a a quick, easy three pillars to remember to to start with. So just so that we aren't brainwashing them to think, oh, they aspirated on their swallow test. That means they automatically are going to have pneumonia. You know, that's not, not the case. We've seen plenty of patients that, you know, head and neck cancer patients are always the, the key population to go back to for these pillars, because sure, they've been through rigorous treatments and they're swallowed just as horrible. You look at their video and you're like, I just don't want to see that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, they're just, they're just not getting sick with pneumonia, but their video swallow is just not pretty. And, um, 
you know, these are patients who maybe are walking every day and they're brushing their teeth and you guide them to say, well, make sure you're brushing with them with an electric toothbrush, using a good mouthwash, you know, do that often, keep, keep your oral microbiome as nice as you can keep it. Um, and their immune system, you know, has now rebounded their, their, you know, maybe many years post radiation and, and chemotherapy. So, um, so they're doing pretty well. They're grossly aspirating, but otherwise they don't have those other two pillars. So, so it really is, so, and, and they're also not bedridden <laughs> or dependent. Um, yeah. So that's a really yeah. a great example of, of when you can be a little bit more liberal. And yeah, and we really need to help doctors, you know, know when to have this, this constantly, like when are we more careful with one person versus when are we more liberal with somebody else? And I remember this, this concept coming from Dr. Rosenbeck, you know, back in the nineties when I was first training with him, thank God for, for Dr. J. Rosenbeck. Teaching me I know. I, everyone is listening to you like, oh my God, you fucking know, Doug Carroll Shuffler. Yeah. <laughs> so he, I just remember him up there, you know, standing there saying, well, sometimes, you know, your hands are really close together. Sometimes you're really careful and rigid with one patient. And then the next patient you go to, your hands are wide apart. You're like, okay, I'm more liberal with him. And, and so the art of our dysphagia is trying to figure out, and you need some years of experience and some mentors and everything to kind of get this feel because there is an art to dysphagia to kind of know my gut's telling me on this guy, I need to be really careful. My gut on this guy is telling me I can be a little bit more liberal and let him go for it, you know? And, and, um, and that's part of how to have a holistic approach for dysphagia, um, which, which I think that's the, you know, one of the key is to get away from just our, um, almost brainwashing at some of the big fast hospitals where it's like, you do swallowing. Everybody else does amazing other things at this hospital. You do swallowing. You get in there, tell them how they're doing swallowing, and you get out. Get to your next patient. Hurry up. You know, productivity, that kind of thing. And that's done a disservice as well to our learning and our holistic treatment of patients because you may need to stick around. You may need to do that evaluation, stick around, talk to the gerontologist, talk to the palliative care doctor, talk to even just talk to the team, talk to those residents, those interns and residents. I, at a small um, community hospital, I every year would just indoctrinate hundreds, <laughs> not hundreds, but, you know, many, many uh, interns and residents, starting with when they first came in, giving them like an hour lecture about dysphagia. And then on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, I just sitting down with them and then giving them the education of dysphagia, the rationale, um, and, and really helping them look at it as the whole patient and all the, all the issues. Um, yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, and if you do want to hear more from Dr. Ashford too, he was on episode three talking all about his oral care, um, spiel. So you can hear more about you that. You had too. such so. great people on. Great job. I know. I know. I'm so thankful to all of you cool people that hang out with me on Sunday yeah. mornings or late Thursday nights or yeah. <laughs> all right. And just a quick message from our sponsor, endohd.com. That's endohd.com forward slash contact. Uh, they would like to invite you to stop by their booth at the Dysphagia Research Society meetings in Baltimore which will be held March 14th through the 17th for an opportunity to play with their true HD fees system. Uh, So come check out a preview of the new patented technology for calculating pharyngeal bolus residue. How cool is that? The calculated residual scale is exciting new technology that will provide a calculated quantification of observed bolus residue in patients with dysphagia during fees. The calculations happen live in real time for each and every frame of video produced during fees. So stop by the booth to discuss research opportunities also available with this new technology. So check out ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information or stop by and say hi to them at DRS. So, okay, so I guess, do we go here now, Karen? Do we, do we say that, so this was my initial reaction when I first read this article was crap, we've kind of done this to ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't, you know, part of me was like, do we want to go there? But I think we have to, yeah. because well, and I think we, your, no, your concept of swallow your pride really takes us there, which is yeah. great, great. <laughs> 
Yeah. The call. yeah, 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 yeah. And and I think if if no one is going to set these doctors set the record straight, if we aren't going to do it, no one is. You know, th- this is our corner. This is this is what we do every day. This is what we know most about more than anybody else is working in that hospital or skilled nursing facility. So we've got to be the ones to grab the bull by the horns here and and right the wrongs of what was in this article and. And I guess, like you said, um, swallow our pride and, and realize that maybe we've done some things wrong in the past. Maybe we've said some things to some doctors in the past that have led them to believe this. And maybe that's all that we knew 10, 15 years ago. But we know a heck of a lot more now. And now it's up to us to to right those wrongs. Right, right. Yeah, I think it was it was just so telling, which is why I had to put those points 11 and, and especially 12 in my uh, in my blog um, that uh, kind of trying to find out what led to this, like what was the background that that led to this article being so sensationalized and everything. And, and I was really surprised to find that old, um, not actually surprised, it's, I've heard it, you know, heard this around uh, before, but, but the Jerry Powell blog from 2015 that I was discussing where that doctor said, you know, I worry about the SLP consult, that it will place the patient um, on an inevitable path towards a peg tube without assessment of goals, values, and alternative approaches such as hand feeding. And, and it's just so sad that somehow what we've been doing has led doctors to have the take-home message that all we do is place and people NPO. And this was something that I used to hear back in maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, where I would hear doctors say, no, I don't want them to have a modified barium swallow or a video fluoroscopic swallow study because I don't want them to be NPO or I don't want them to get a feeding tube in the first place. So for years, I've already been pushing doctors to not have that video swallow study be like video swallow equals NPO, video swallow equals feeding tube. That's not why we do the study. And we need to really keep driving that home that, you know, there's so much more that we test. And I think I went over that quite a bit in the blog that is not just about aspiration. We're, we, I love how the, the, uh, this, this article from the Washington Post, I love how it's like, they think that all we do with a video swallow is, uh, you know, determine the quantity of liquid being aspirated. I'm like, if that was all I had to do, right. I so I mean, many patients. Yeah, <laughs> done. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, of course, we don't just stop at aspiration. We certainly don't just look at liquids. Um, we really want to know the underlining reason of what's happening. Why is, what made the bolus do that in the first place, which is what Dr. Uh, James Coyle always describes. Um, you know, we don't just talk about the bolus. We talk about the patient. So what did the patient do that made the bolus do that? <laughs> so don't right, just stop right. at aspiration and residue. You want to find out what caused the aspiration, what caused the residue in the first place. Um, and was it a structural or a physiological problem or a combination of both or, you know, or otherwise. So, um, so yeah, so we really need to make sure as a field that we are not just stopping with the quick get in there, get out of there, give a recommendation of NPO and move on to the next patient. That's, I think that's what's done our field a disservice um, to have the doctors think that that's all we do. What do right. you think? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny you said that because like when all this was going on this week, I, I did a fees on a patient maybe Wednesday or Thursday and he just had only one episode of aspiration on, it ended up being like a 10, 12 minute study, but my, my report was like an entire page and a half long because so much was going on, but he only, he only had one episode of aspiration. So the SLP said to me, you know, I'm kind of confused. Like, it looks like his swallow is really disordered by the way, everything that we saw and everything that you said. And, and I was like, yes. And we only found one episode of aspiration, but then we also tried a compensatory strategy that eliminated that. Yeah. We went through a gamut of compensatory strategies, and that's why the study took so long. Um, but that's the end game. You know, if, if I had just written about everything that was wrong with this patient, and I didn't say, you know, however, we tried all these compensatory strategies, and we found that this was effective. And, you know, I also talked about his, you know, cognitive status, his oral health status, his immune system. All of that was perfectly healthy. 
you know, so this guy, I'm not going to be concerned about this one episode of aspiration when yes, he has a disordered, but functional swallow, Mm -hmm. you know? So I just think of, I think of other, and I not don't want to toot my own horn by any means, but I think of this other hospital around here that does these modified barium solo studies and these reports that come out of there are just like my heart sinks whenever I read them. Because I think of if, if they did, if they did a, a floral on this guy and they saw one episode of aspiration, they would have shut down the study and he would have been MPO. Wow. That's a huge difference. And it is, it really is. So, you know, I mean, you know, what do the doctors think of, of that facility? You know, the doctors that are working in that hospital, if that is all that this, you know, SLP in this facility is doing is, you know, I mean, it, it, it never fails. Every time I see a report that comes from there, they had one episode of aspiration, they shut down the study, they recommend NPO. Right. So you get the, you get the difference of NPO and then the doctor's forced to choose a peg with that one person, one person's report versus your report. You probably put the person on what? Uh, I, I, he ended up, yeah, I put him on thin and, and mechanical soft actually just yeah. due to some dental issues. Or but we could, yeah, I mean, hey, we could call that yeah. that mechanical soft. What would you call that in itsy words? International dysphagia diet standardization initiative words. Um, yes. So, um, so would you call it soft and bite-sized um, versus minced and moist? So, so the levels being puree, Minced and moist is kind of the old term for like the dysphagia mechanically altered from national dysphagia diet. And some people used to call that also moist ground. Um, mechanical soft, I've always hated that. I know, I know. <laughs> it does have a but, weird connotation. Uh, yeah. It's like it doesn't mean anything, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? Um, and then the other really awesome diet now on the ITSI protocol or ITSI framework is soft and bite sized because now we can keep people maybe off the you know, what used to be national dysphagia diet, um, dysphagia mechanically altered, or what we used to call moist ground, um, and what now ITSY calls minced and moist, um, you can imagine a minced and moist if the particle size is four millimeter sizes, all minced up, everything is all minced up, you know, you got some gravy and sauces to make it cohesive, that's still a very altered diet. Um, but now ITSY has defined this soft and bite-sized uh, diet, which I think is going to be a really nice um, middle of the road diet to be able to choose because the soft texture is going to be, um, you know, if you press a fork into a solid, you're, um, you're able to deform that solid. It's nice and moist. And it's that moist and cohesive, slippery bolus texture that you want. Um, but it's also bite-sized so that people aren't going to be choking on this stuff. So bite-sized like the size of an adult thumbnail um, or roughly 1.5 centimeter size bite. So I think the old term of mechanical soft, when that wasn't really a moist ground, that old term of mechanical soft, I think what people meant was maybe the soft and bite size of the new itsy diet, yes. which I, yes. I just wanted to go on yeah, that. Yeah, no, I'm tan- glad you did. Yes. Um, as a, yes. As an itsy champion. Uh, yes, please do. <laughs> yes. Yes. The soft and bite sized is what I went with for him. Yes. And then look yeah, then so liquids. that guy's doing really yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so isn't that amazing? The difference, like, so if we don't have consistency in our field and, you know, the pun of consistency, right? So, so we don't have consistency in our consistencies for one thing, which is why the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, IDDSI.org, has worked for so long to get the consistency amongst consistencies, whether it's the liquids or the diets. And then we also don't have consistency amongst how we evaluate and how we summarize and how we recommend things. So one hospital just saying, oh my God, there's one aspiration on thin liquid. I have to say MPO, I have to say tube feeding versus a a different therapist doing that very same study might have said like what you did, thin liquid with some strategies, um, take a look at these physiological problems in therapy work on their whatever it was tongue-based strengthening or pharyngeal squeeze or and then leave them on a, a fairly regular diet with some modifications and um and that's the same study but just two different brains looking at at that and two different foundations like what was the foundation of their education to make them say oh my God, aspiration equals danger equals NPO versus, oh, aspiration, what can we do about that? Oh, here's a good idea. And here's his, his diet recommendation. You know, 
why are we so different right, as a family? Right. And, and I, you know, I've tried to speak with this person, but she won't speak with me. So I, I don't know what the issue is, but another SLP did end up communicating with her and said, you know, why don't you go back and, and do the MBS IMP or, you know, so much has changed about what we know about aspiration, what we know about the swallow. And, you know, you're not telling me what I need to know as far as the pathophysiology, the, the impairments that we're seeing. And the SLP's response was, well, I've just been doing it this way for so long. Why would I try this new MBS IMP technique? Like, this is the way that I've been doing it for so long. And no, like, no. <laughs> I just like, want to you shake want your... at someone when I hear that response. Would you want your cardiologist right. to tell would you, you that? Would your... you want your primary care you doctor to tell you that? I mean, I say that all I the mean... time. I live right near Roswell Cancer Center. If these doctors yeah. were studying cancer the same way we did 30 years ago, we'd have a heck of a lot of dead people. <laughs> like, we'd have major yeah. problems. And it's, well, and it's even the same concept of like people having such trouble getting modified barium swallows on their patients in the first place and doctors not valuing our process of having that x-ray vision or the endoscopic vision. Like we need those instrumental evaluations to guide therapy. And so many therapists are coming back saying, oh, my doctor won't order these studies, but we need to let them realize that our our ordering of a basic, uh, you know, either fees or a video swallow study is just like how they have to order a chest x-ray to determine pneumonia. They have to order, you know, the, an x-ray of the hip to determine hip fracture. They, they wouldn't dream of treating cancer without having had multitude of CT scans right, right. or even PET well, that's scans. What, um, I just interviewed Dr. Souter too, and she said the same exact thing. She said, and that kind of, the way she said it was really hit home to me. You know, she said to these doctors, you're expecting me to diagnose and treat something without imaging the same way that you're allowed to diagnose and treat cancer. You know, you want me to assess something that is equally as deadly. Aspiration pneumonia can be equally as deadly as cancer, but yet you're restricting my access to instrumentation for something that if we're suspecting cancer, you wouldn't even think twice about imaging. Right. So, right. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Deborah Suter, we have to give her a huge kudos. She's done amazing research and you had an yeah. episode with her, huh? What, which one was yes, that? Yes. She'll, she's actually going to be after you. She's going to air the week oh, after great. you. So yeah, <laughs> so sit tight everyone. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Teresa has lots of good stuff for you guys coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, yeah, Dr. Suter, if people don't know, uh, worked very closely with Stephen Leader, our, our late great uh, other mentor who has passed. Um, I also have a, a several blogs um, after. That's one of my most favorite series. Yeah, you I did. Karen. Yeah. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding is a for sure. Yes. <laughs> that actually was a research article by Dr. Stephen Leader. Um, <clears throat> and I uh, use that as a blog title too, because he had such a great image um, in his research article called The Proof is in the Pudding, where um, using fees, he just saw this, you know, a pill just drop into the airway. Um, and, you know, when you're doing a fees in the ICU and you can show the doctors, hey, you, you want to say NPO accept medications, but look at this pill that just dropped into his airway. Sometimes we do need to get in people's face like that. Really, I mean, not in a, in a rude way. We have to very nicely show them the images. I've done that before where, you know, back in the early days, I used to have my... Um, my TV VCR <laughs> to do yes, my video Karen. swallow studies. I'm like, the talk of the 90s here. So I literally wheeled my, my cart up to the ICU, sat all the residents down and had them see the video from themselves or what Stephen Leader was saying he did in, in this uh, case in the ICU was he you know, said, you know, NPO accept medications is not always a good idea because those medications are dropping right into the airway and look, boom, that pill just fell to the lungs. Um, so yes, yeah, so that nothing speaks a thousand words like a picture like that. So, so that's really, you know, it's, it's one way that we can help our doctors, you know, learn more about this stuff. So, yeah, um, absolutely. I always try on my reports, I always put in a couple of images and then I put in a blurb underneath, like, you know, this is demonstrating aspiration or, you know, this is a completely clear laryngeal vestibule if they are, you know, suspecting they're aspirating on everything, you know, so, so I think, you know, I encourage the SLPs take this report, you know, I like to think that the doctors are going to read my report, but who knows, but take them these pictures, at least, you know, I had a, a nurse practitioner challenge me a few months back about, 
why do we need same thing? Why do we need these these studies? Why do we need this test? Um, and I just showed her picture after picture after picture of this is what you thought with this guy. This is what you hypothesized. This is what we found on actual imaging. This is what you were suspecting. This is what you were treating. This is what you were giving him medication for. However, we found the contrary on imaging. You know, so not not that we have to be defiant like that, but <laughs> it, it, like you said, a picture means a thousand words. Right, so. right. And we just yeah. they should probably teach us in in uh, SLP uh, in our master's degree, like like the delicate, tactful ways to completely disagree nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. let me show you something else. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, like we said, this just keeps coming back to the same point is how can we use this article to our advantage now? You know, let's not just crawl in our little SLP holes and admit that we've done some crappy therapy for some years, but swallow our pride and get out there and, and educate your physicians and say, hey, I, I do a heck of a lot more than you give me credit for. You know, I don't know if you know what I do in therapy all day, but we have a lot of exercises and a lot of different strategies to rehab the swallow. I don't just put them on thickened liquids. You may see that they're on thickened liquids, but they're just on that while I'm rehabbing the swallow until we can get them improved. So, you know, so they don't know what they don't know. You know, I mean, not doctors aren't hanging out in the rehab gym all day. You know, doctors, they may not know. So I'm, I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt and just say that these doctors just didn't really know what the SLPs were doing. All yeah, day. yeah. And I think that's what, you know, the, the disappointed MD comment at the end of the Washington Post article, I think that's what he was pretty much saying. He said, as he said, you know, please mostly ignore this article. It was written by two internal medicine doctors in training who have never, likely never personally treated dysphagia and they're definitely not dysphagia experts. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's nice that they're raising awareness of dysphagia and that now we, as those who treat dysphagia along with our big deglutition team, um, you know, we're really now out there and, and showing people how broad the field is. And, and, um, you know, I, I really like the concept of the deglutition team. Um, yeah, yeah. As I said in my blog too, um, Reza Shakir has been just one of my heroes for a long time, you know, going back to, um, training in Wisconsin, uh, he's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and, and Reza Shakir is a, um, gastroenterologist in Milwaukee and and has just been such a hero of the dysphagia field for so long. He, of course, started Dysphagia Research Society um, along with many other physicians who included radiologists um, and speech pathologists and uh, included, you know, many of our top speech pathologists. So, so, um, so he had said, you know, transdisciplinary approach, you know, cause we always use the word multidisciplinary, but I just, I really like the concept of transdisciplinary because yeah, it really just goes across, you know, that I just, why do you think it sounds better? Like transdisciplinary versus multidisciplinary. I know. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Well, because I think multi still kind of puts everyone on their own little islands, you know, where I think trans is like a good collective. Yeah. Like going across versus just like you said, the silos or the islands. Yes. I have one of my, one of my prior blogs um, about kind of the islands of dysphagia and, and how dysphagia is in this island in speech pathology. And we need to, you know, really broaden that out and have better dysphagia education, even from the beginning. So yeah, yeah. I had I did a fees this past week on a guy, and it just was obvious that it was clearly all esophageal issues, all esophageal. And you know, I said, get him to this GI. I know this G- GI doctor is fantastic, and the SLP was like, okay. So then, what do I do? And I said, well, don't just be a silo. Call the GI doctor. Tell her what we did. Follow up with her. You know, you want to have good cohesive care with your you know fellow physicians, and not like you said, just be this silo. Send the patient off never follow up again, or, you know, just read the report, reach out, call them. Right, right. I mean, that's the way we're going to have the best transdisciplinary care. Right, right. So, and, and that GI was so happy that she called actually the GI said, Oh, thank you so much for calling. You know, I'm so glad we had this conversation. I'm so glad you tell me what you found. And I think that's how we get right. the best outcomes it for is, our patients. Yeah. And creating a, <clears throat> excuse me, creating a culture like that at your hospital, like at our, at our Boston hospital, um, <laughs> <laughs> we tend to um, just email, we have, you know, such a relationship with GI and ENT there and we just email them and, and they're so happy for such a thorough, I always get these email about, emails back, thank you again for such a thorough evaluation, you know, and, and, you know, you do a thorough eval, but then send them an email with the real bullet point 
points of like, what's our plan and let's put our heads together. And, and so whether it's an email or like you said, picking up the phone, um, it's, that was actually one of the things I was writing down before our conversation. Um, you know, what's our plan? What's, what's going to be our SLP action plan. And, and so one of the things was, I just wrote down, pick up the phone, you know, <laughs> so pick up the yeah, phone or yeah. email and have a conversation because maybe something, like maybe you did your video swallow in inpatient care. And then the next day you read that doctor's report and the way they boiled down what you said was like, whoa, that's not what I meant. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe yeah. even you asked for a palliative care consult and you come in the next day and the palliative care report was like, eh, that's, that's not quite where I thought this was going to go. <clears throat> then you just have to pick up the phone and make sure the team is on the same page with your thinking because sometimes the whisper down the lane concept really comes in. You remember telephone that- Yeah, the game of telephone, yeah. So so (laughs) you tell the intern how the video swallow went. The intern tells the resident. The resident then maybe tells that palliative care doctor and it gets all wishy-washy and boiled down to the point that maybe palliative care didn't realize how dire and how bad this was. So maybe palliative care says, oh, I initiated the conversation of end of life palliative care with the family, but- let's have the speech pathologist come back next week and see if the swallow is better. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't have a magic wand. I I can't come back next week and make this better because sometimes, yes, that, that swallow is so bad and you really, in your best clinical judgment, you really feel like that swallow is not going to improve um, no matter what we do. And so we need to make it clear that, you no, know, now is the time to have the conversation. And, and, um, and sometimes our prognosis statements and how we write can help doctors think in, in the right way. So our prognosis statement, not only just saying fair, good, excellent, or poor, we might want to say, um, you know, something along the lines where it may take days to weeks to recover, or it may take weeks to months, or it's unlikely to really change. Like, so if, if something's going to take weeks to months, then yeah, we may want to guide them towards a peg. Um, if something's unlikely to change with, with any kind of aggressive rehab, then maybe a palliative care focus is warranted and, and then, you know, that conversation really needs to happen. Um, as I linked to in my blog, um, I had written a, a, a blog about the conversation. So the conversation in quotes and title, the conversation, um, because it was from a, um, a, pallia- a palliative care doctor within the partners network, um, Dr. Volandes. And uh, he actually has a book and a video series called The Conversation um, to help doctors and families have the conversation about palliative care and help them with all that complex decision-making at the end of life. And, you know, whether it's palliative care um, or, you know, full-on comfort measures only, um, but that's one side of the spectrum versus aggressive or what you could call curative care at the other end of the spectrum. And just trying to figure out in that whole spectrum from hospice comfort measures only to palliative care to to more aggressive measures all the way through a perfectly curative care. It's really a spectrum of decision-making and that takes quite a finesse. It takes a quite a involved conversation that you're going to have with the family. It means, it means doctors really need to sit down. Like I I put that in my blog several times, you know, this is not a conversation you have standing at the bedside. This is a sit down with them conversation um, with the family and really showing the family just with your you know, pragmatics of sitting and, and having the conversation is yeah, yeah, a big difference. Yeah. 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 I, and I think that's something that I always try to do with my patients too, is, you know, and, and something that Dr. Paul Leslie has been such a champion for is, is patient rights and what right. is important to them. And, you know, I think of this, this guy that I just saw, you know, that he had come from that hospital with an MBS for NPO And when I got in to do the follow-up fees, he was basically just in tears. And he was like, I don't care if this is how I'm going to go out. I just want to eat. Like, I just want to go home and I want to have Sunday dinner with my family. I want to drink red wine with my wife. You know, he, his quality of life and his goals, his vision for his goals were so clear and vivid, you know, and, and, and I said, did the SLP at the hospital even have this conversation with you? And he said, no, she did the x-ray. 
saw that I had, I aspirated and said, I have to get a feeding tube. And like my heart sunk when I heard that, you know, like, no, that is, we, we can be so much more powerful in this field. And, you know, not that I gave this guy all the answers, but I at least tried to have an open and honest conversation with him about, you know, yeah, this, this swallow does not look great. And I don't know how rehabable it is, but you know, we can try some strategies and these are your goals and that's, what's important to you. So, you know, who am I to say that you can't live out the rest of your life the way you want to, you know? So I, I don't know that us as SLPs have had a lot of that counseling training, but it's definitely, you know, something that we need to get better at. Right. We need that in our, in our master's degree programs. We, I had a good education counseling, um, sort of ethics class at university of Wisconsin, Madison, but I don't think that is often in. in right. When well, I had a good counseling class too, but it was mostly focused on aphasia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. like I would kind you of go apply. back and look through my notes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and think like, okay, how can I kind of spend these words to dysphagia? You know, I mean, cause it, it's still, is a counseling act that we have to do. Right, right. It's so challenging. That reminded me of a patient that I had as well here in Boston right before the uh, Super Bowl. <laughs> um, I'm from Philadelphia and I live in Boston. How cool was that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so right before the Super Bowl, I had a patient who had just such trouble swallowing and all he wanted to do was get home in time for the Super Bowl and just eat what he wanted to eat. And he knew he was dying. And, um, you know, and the hospital was able to, to help him, you know, do that. He was able to leave and, and get home from the Super Bowl. And I don't have any other further information. Yeah. What yeah happened. But, but, but that's the thing. It's like, you have to, as a speech pathologist, find out what their, not only what their baseline is, but what their wishes are for the future. And, you know, that's one good point that, um, that the doctors made in our Washington Post article was that we really need to make sure that we know what their, their goals of care and their, um, their feeling about eating. I've had some patients that are like, you know, I'm okay with, with not eating. It's not a big deal for me or, or I actually like my thickened liquids because it feels safer or that kind of thing. But, um, but we really can be instrumental in starting the conversation. It's just that it's not fully in our scope of practice to have the conversation and to like guide these patients and families all the way to the end decision-making. Like we want to start the conversation and then say, and you know, you're going to continue this conversation with your medical team and with your family and everything. Um, but yeah, we can't, we can't have the whole conversation. We've had doctors at the hospital that are just like, can you do the goals of care discussion for me? And it's like, no, I just can't. <laughs> right, 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 right. What are their wishes as far as eating? You know, that's kind of the end of our scope of practice there. And then, you know, not that we are the, the be all end all decision. You know, I like to have the conversation with the patient and say, okay, you know, we'll have to talk about this with the doctor and, and kind of together we'll, we'll come to a decision. Or but, if we can be, you know, I if like we can just, be right at the table with them, you know, if, yeah. if we have the luxury and sometimes in smaller community hospitals, it works better where, where you are at the table, you know, with the doctor and the patient and the family and everybody's having a, a nice, you know, family meeting together. That's, that's really the ideal. Cause then there's no whisper down the lane messages get crossed and confused and yeah. 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 No telephone game. Yeah. <laughs> So, so right. looks like we're coming to an hour. <laughs> we are. Is there is there anything else from this article that you want to take home? Any other have people grind into people's just, brains? Yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of our SLP action plan, one of the things that I wrote down just in review was was how you write your report is is the biggie. <laughs> so if you're talking only about that big, bad A word, <laughs> aspiration, then doctors are feeling cornered to then try and prevent aspiration at all costs and maybe having to say NPO and feeding tube. So we really want to give more rationale, more underlining causes, more options for the doctors so that they understand the bigger picture. That's really what it's about. Um, the other one I wrote was number two is stick around. Like in this day and age, we're being pushed to go in the patient's room and run out of the patient's room and run to the next patient. But ideally, if we can squeeze out a little bit more time, um, we want to take a more holistic approach and stick around for that transdisciplinary care, staying at the table with the conversation. Um, and then, like we said, the third one was like, pick up the phone or email or reach out to your, that transdisciplinary team 
the, you know, think of that whole team of deglutology, not just speech language pathology, but of course, otolaryngology, neurology, radiology, gastroenterology, and, and our OT, PT, physical, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and certainly our dietitian colleagues, um, and also our respiratory therapy colleagues. All these people, it's just such a huge team, um, and certainly working with the nurses as well. It's, um, you know, we, we, I think the last point would go out on the chin tuck, you know, you have to wonder where people are getting their dysphagia education these days, because it's really been within the last, I would say four to five years that nursing has been really into the chin tuck. You now hear nurses all the time saying, Oh, I told them to chin tuck and I think it might be better or something. Right. If that was all that patients had to do, we wouldn't have jobs. Like, I don't think people realize this. Our field would be obsolete if all we just needed nurses to tell them to tuck their chin. Right, exactly. And actually, we should give um, some final kudos to Dr. Ianessa Humbert as well, um, as well as Emily Plowman with their critical thinking and dysphagia management course for the last couple of years, I think it's been now. Um, And it's really been pushing the field to think more critically and not just think like what the nurses are thinking, like, well, oh, they look like they're aspirating. I'm going to have them tuck their chin and they'll be perfect. Um, so we do have brains. <laughs> we do have critical thinking brains. And, you know, that's what, uh, that's what's going to help our patients uh, and, and give hope for dysphagia and, and have the treatment options be very broad. And, and I also want to say, too, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to other people in your area. You know, I, I feel like in the last couple months, I don't know what I've done, maybe this podcast, but I've had so many just kind of local organizations reach out and ask me if I'd come present to their team of doctors just for a half an hour or, you know, come in and just do a before work coffee and donuts session with their residents, things like that. You know, oh, that's great. So if you if you're an SLP and you don't feel like, you know, everything there is to know about dysphagia, not saying I do by any means, but if, if you aren't feeling your strongest and maybe maybe you kind of are perpetuating this poor information, reach out in your community, you know, see if there are other SLPs that may come in and help do an in-service in your building and help get the doctors on your side. And, you know, I think we finally have SLPs that are hungry for this knowledge and hungry to learn more, you know, for no pun intended, but, you know, wanting to learn more about the swallow. And and that's great. That's where we need this profession to go. But now we've got to kind of spread the seed and and spread our message to our transdisciplinary team. Yeah. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Teresa, oh, for this thank opportunity. You, Karen. And we could probably talk about this until noon. It's nine o'clock in the morning now. <laughs> we could, we could. But uh, we will continue maybe another time with other topics. Yes. Yes. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Karen. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.